Welcome to the podcast, Life Lessons from Travels Off the Beaten Path. Hi, my name is Justine Murray, and I'm also known as Lighter Step Justine, as we strive to step lightly across the earth and only leave footprints. This podcast is about the life lessons I've learned as a traveler, particularly when I decided to step off the beaten path. Mostly this occurred in the non-digital era when there was no internet or mobile phones. My sometimes bizarre and always unforgettable adventures around the globe, often as a solo woman traveller, gave me great insight into living a fulfilled life, blessed with all my senses, to enjoy the wonders the world has to offer. From wildlife encounters, to midnight crashes, to dodging stalkers and trekking with tribes, to travelling with a child and around work commitments. I will entertain you with my stories and what each adventure has taught me, along with some general travel and life wisdom along the way. I also will be bringing in other travellers who can captivate us with their own travel stories and the life lessons they have learned. So tune in to me each week and let's get entertained with travel. So another thing that made a profound effect on me while I was living in Nairobi for those six months was my visits to the Samburu tribe. Now, if you remember back in episode 29, I I talked about how I went and to the Maasai area and met a family and I ended up going there and staying there often on the weekends when I wasn't working and spending time with them and going to their ceremonies, etc. But I was a little bit jaded by them after a while because they were forever asking for money from me and but they never really did much about earning money themselves and or or working themselves they seem to always just been sitting around and that and we partially as I mentioned we partially made that effect with tourism and most people were very keen to take photos and pay for photos for them, uh, of them, and that's how a lot of them learnt to associate, you know, the Mzungals, the white people, with easy way of getting money. So I stopped going to the Maasai and I was a little bit disappointed because I really enjoyed as you know, I really enjoyed learning about different cultures and, and Kenya's uh, got so many cultures. It's it's amazing. Uh, but I was very lucky in one of my areas where I rode uh, the horses on the week, which was up in the tea fields where they grow tea in the highlands of Kenya. I met, uh, I, I met a number of the the people that worked for the owners uh, who used to, you know, they'd be the groom for the horses. And, you know, we would chat and I told them about what happened and the issues I have with the Maasai. And one of them mentioned to me that they had a Samburu man who was one of the guards of the place uh, and he used to do night watchmen work and he actually came from Samburu tribe and um, he might 
be willing to show me his lifestyle. Uh, and so I met this man and he was happy to take me up and take me to his family home and spend time with his family. So the next time he had a few days off, so often he'd work and, and live at the tea farm and then he would catch buses to the closest place to his family and then he would get off and walk. So I joined him one day and we we drove to the north uh, in a Matatu. We caught buses to the north of Mount Kenya. I remember seeing Mount Kenya in the in the background and Unfortunately, I didn't have a map at the time. I didn't have Google Maps or anything like this. So it was actually a little bit difficult to to try and find out actually where I went. But I do believe, you know, I went obviously towards Samburu County, but I do believe I went close to I went through Nanyuki and I went close to a small, I didn't even know it was a town, a few, it only had a few houses and shops uh, called Timau, T-I-M-A-U. And I'm not 100%, but I think that's where we went. Anyway, and that's north, directly north of Mount Kenya. So if you looked back, you could see the multiple peaks of Mount Kenya. And... I went to the, oh, first off, we stopped off at the shops there, the, you know, just the open market type shops. And I asked the, the man uh, if it'd be okay if I bought his kids some sweets just as a thank you for letting me come. And he, he sort of put me in his place just by, just by his words. I felt quite bad about what I said. And, um, yeah, oh, I'm so stupid. Anyway, he said, um, oh, please, if you want to buy something, please buy them some fruit, some bananas. And I was like, oh, of course, of course. So I bought them a bunch of bananas. And it just made me really realise just, you know, bananas was a treat for them. We, you know, it's a common fruit for us, but it was a treat for them. So... He got his staples and I bought the bananas and we set off across the plain, uh, big rangeland to where his family were. And we walked for a good, probably a good couple of hours. And we finally arrived at his uh at his area, and there was no roads, there was no tracks. You were just walking virtually cross-country through the grass. And this grass was, it wasn't a national park or anything, but it was teeming with wildlife. There was, uh, I saw lots of antelope. I saw uh, zebra. And it was just amazing just walking through there. And we weren't even in, in, in a park. Um, anyway, so we arrived at the, the hut and I met his wife and he had two children, a boy and a girl. And they 
obviously didn't speak English. He spoke English, but they didn't speak English. But they were quite happy, well, seemed to be quite content to have me. I gave them the bananas. And so I spent the weekend there and just watched what they did. They herded, they had goats and cattle. And they, the husband and the, the boy would go out during the day and take them grazing. Uh, so the, the, the home was, was really a, um, they were just following the rains and the grass. And so it was, it was quite mobile. It was not a permanent fixture. They would just had built a mud and stick hut. And when they were ready to move, they just left it and went on and you know, took, actually probably took the framework and and put everything on their animals and moved to the next place. And so this was only a transient place. And but the whole time I was there, this is where they stayed. And so this. I now had a new place to visit. So this is where I'd go every weekend. So I went, the second time I went up there, the next weekend or the following weekend, I went up there and I didn't have uh, the husband with me. So I just remembered where I went and then just walked across the plains by myself. And I wasn't even the least bit scared. There was no people around. Uh, the animals I saw, you know, potentially there could have been predators, etc. But I didn't see any because there was still a lot of movement through it with the pastoralists, you know, herding their cattle and sheep. So they really used to scare the predators away because obviously they didn't want them attacking their livestock. And so the predators around were, were pretty uh, had quite a bit of fear of the. Uh, of the people that lived this way because they always carried spears and clubs and it was rare for them to attack. They may, uh, like a leopard may jump down and grab a, a goat and go off or would, um, you know, but it was, wasn't very common. Anyway, so I remember when I was there, I spent time, I wanted to really experience it and, you know, every day we would go down a hill. We sort of lived on a, you know, it was like a high plain and we'd go down the slope to where there was a spring at the bottom and we would, uh, and they would, um, you know, collect the water and carry it back up. Uh, and one day I said, oh, look, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do my share. I'll carry the water back up. And what it was is just, you know, a uh, big jerry can full of water and they had made some like rope twine and on both ends and they they didn't carry it on their head but they carried it uh, as a strap on their with a strap on their forehead so it kept their arms free but the the weight was all on their head and forehead so not really realising what I was doing, I volunteered to carry it back up the hill. And, oh, my gosh, it was so hard. The The pressure on my forehead was too much for me to bear. 
I don't know how they do it. They must have the strong, they, you know, they learn to have the strongest neck and posture to do this. Uh, it was just too much pressure. I couldn't handle it. So I used my hands to take some of the pressure away. What Then what happened was it slipped off my forehead and then the next thing was around my neck. <laughs> and I spent, and I didn't know how I was going to get out of this because it was, I couldn't just put it down because I would have, could have snapped my, le- my neck. So I climbed up this slope, absolutely panic, silently panicking, uh, with this strap with a heavy, at least um, 20 kilo or 25 kilo weight of water behind me. Uh, up to the up to the hut and um, delivered it and then someone helped me get it off and uh, I I have so much respect for those women that do that and the girls you know young girls who do that every single day they are so fit they are so strong uh, it is it was incredible I failed in my first in my attempt up there I couldn't do it uh, and I remember also another time I went, uh, I wanted to have a, a bath and I was told there was a spring, um, you know, like a walk away. I had to walk down to this ravine and there was a, um, a, a series of pools of water that you could go in there. And so because I didn't want an audience, I went by myself. And it was probably a good five, six Ks away. And I walked down, not thinking much about it, walked into the, uh, found the springs and proceeded to to wash myself. And I just, you know, I took my clothes off and got in and, and washed myself. I probably shouldn't have done that. But anyway, you, you, you know, as a Westerner, you don't really think about these things. But... As I was there, there's a troop of baboons came down and I don't know if you remember my episode in Nigeria when we were at uh, pools or again a pool of water and baboons were very aggressive and would come visit us. Well, these baboons came right down and they weren't scared of me at all and so I had no whip, nothing, and I just sort of grabbed my clothes because I didn't want them to take them, and I just hung on to them in the water, and these baboons sort of like walked around and stared at me for a little while, probably wondering what I was doing. And there was, they definitely, they weren't showing aggression, but they were showing, they were quite dominant. It was, this was their territory, and I was in their territory. <laughs> And it was it was quite daunting. Uh, nothing happened. They eventually went away, and then I got out and I went back. And then and I was going back, and obviously I was I was reflecting on the what had happened with the baboons. I just started looking around and realizing, oh my gosh, this this is a perfect setup for where le- leopards live, and uh, you know in the trees above, and it's tight gully, and it's you know it's all ready for ambush. And here I am walking alone with no. Uh, no way of protecting myself and you know leopards kill people a lot too especially people that are by themselves Uh, obviously I survived nothing happened but it was a one of my moments where on reflection back I realized 
it could have been a lot worse. Uh, some of the other things I did when I was when I used to visit this group, um, they would often take me on treks into Samburu County, into their land, where there'd be places where they'd be having uh, ceremonies, such as wedding ceremonies uh, and circumcision as well, the um, controversial subject. And, you know, it, it is described as barbaric, and it is. Uh, I, I was at a few circumcision ceremonies and I've seen these witch doctors come in, they're not clean, they have just razor blades and they're not new, they're rusty and they cut these girls and there's, they've got no painkillers, no nothing and, uh, and they go away and some girls have died from it. And it's, you know, it's obviously not very pleasant. The idea is they cut out the clitoris here uh, so the women don't get pleasure in having sex and then they won't stray from their husbands. In these tribes, they used to get uh, married very early, like 10 to 12, and often these, these tribes, could the men could have up to four wives. Uh, so often you'd find a, a man in his 40s with four wives who had, you know, from, from around the same age all the way down to a young teenager. And you can just imagine what that young teenager had to go through to endure this and this and, and then get married to an old man basically. Uh, so uh, I, they used, they, they made me watch one. I didn't want to, but they made me stay in the watch one and it was in a, where all the girls were in, in a hut and this girl, I couldn't understand why she didn't run away, <laughs> this young girl. And it was all smoky and it was horrible. I couldn't, I actually couldn't watch. Um, but then I watched the ceremony was about them. It was their initiation into womanhood that, you know, once they got circumcised, it was their, they, you know, they went from a girl to a woman. And these girls that were getting circumcised, before they got circumcised, they were dancing, they were enjoying it. And enjoying their, you know, being the centre of attention. And then they went and got circumcised. Then an hour later, they're up there dancing and, and enjoying it again. And that blew me away. And their smiles and the happiness. I mean, what blew me away was even before they got circumcised, I would have been in an absolute mess, panicking and, and running away. And they weren't. They were looking forward to it. It was then their right into womanhood. And I know, I'll, I can probably talk about it now. I know these these type of ceremonies. You know, as Westerners, we feel they're very barbaric. It's you know they're not looking after women's rights, etc. 
But the way I looked at it and saw how these women look, these girls look forward to it and looked really forward to their circumcisions, I thought, you know, we Westerners come along and bugger this all up. But it, it was it was actually illegal even then back in Kenya. They they weren't supposed to be doing it, but it was it was known that they'd do it. But I suppose it was you know, it was their initiation right, like, like a lot of indigenous tribes and when the Westerners have come in and taken all that away because and they can't do it, so they've got no way of, of doing that very important initiation. Right. So you know, when we really have to be careful when we work with with Indigenous tribes to try and bring in you know, human rights, etc. What can we replace it with? We, you know, often they're just taken away and they're banned from doing things, but nothing is put forward as an alternative. So what is the alternative? I know the Indigenous Australians, the um, Aborigines, they used to go off and get initiated uh, and that was sort of stopped. So they're it became a period of time where their initiation was being was going to jail. Now, that that shocked me when I heard that. Uh, so, and then I saw what was happening in Africa, and I realised it's such a complex issue. It's not just a simple solution like let's ban everything, let's stop all this cruelty and barbarism sure we need to do that definitely you know there's either in Ethiopia and Somalia and Sudan they do even worse by cutting out the clitoris and then sewing them up and making it totally unbearable for them um, to have children but they in doing so in bringing that education working out solutions to how can then they bring in a new tradition, a new initiation period that these girls feel they, when they reach womanhood or when the boys reach manhood, how can they uh, do this and go through a rite of passage using another method besides these barbaric methods? Yeah, you know, the boys, when they reach manhood, they go through a few years being uh, warriors, Marani. Uh, this, this is common, the Maasai, the Samburu, and all the other similar tribes, the Rendili. Um, and so they, the, the, Lokot, the Pokot, I think. So they had these Marani warriors, and these are the warriors that flat their hair down, um, make it really long and they go and live in bachelor groups and one of the first things they that happens to them is they get circumcised and it's the same thing it's a um it's a man with a rusty razor blade or knife uh some boys die from it um and they have to they're not allowed to make a noise or scream or they shame their family there's no painkillers there is no anesthetic there's nothing they just get it cut their their foreskin and they are not allowed to bring shame by any sort of um show any sort of uh, emotion when it happens 
and then they go and live with this bachelor group and where they preen themselves with lots of um uh you know with the blog plats and that it's very it was quite funny they often carried a comb often in their head uh on their head stuck into their hair and they always had a mirror so they could check how they looked <laughs> so i thought it was quite amusing um and they were very they're very prideful very yeah very proud and uh, and they would have to hunt for themselves and subsist for themselves away from the group. Then after a few years, they'd come back and then they were allowed to marry. Uh, but, you know, I, I chatted with some of these men that were had gone either gone through Morani and they weren't Morani anymore or they still were. And, you know, I asked them about this, having the men allowed four wives, what did they think? And what do they think about these young girls being snatched up by the older men and you know they even said it was a problem for them because what happens is then it takes a lot of the women are taken uh, and they don't have access to women of their own age because they're being promised to older men and so i don't know what it's like today but it is quite an issue. It is an. It was an issue then, and uh, and it was. But it was part of their custom, and they had to live with it. I don't know how much uh, our Western influence has come into their tribe uh, in twenty twenty one, but uh, I hope they're still pretty much the same with some of their. Hopefully, some of their barbaric customs exchanged for a, a less so um, less body mutilating method uh, and but the the Saburu walks the trekking with the tribes the that that tribe you know, nearly every weekend till I finished my stay in in Sam uh, in Kenya uh, was a highlight. It was, um, you know, we were walking. It was really quite highlands. I remember we'd walk across these. You know, sometimes we'd walk thirty kilometres in a day, and we'd be crossing areas. It was packed with wildlife uh, and we'd be, or we'd be beside, I remember walking beside a game reserve and you'd be beside the, the great big fences and all the electric wire uh, and all this and you'd see where the elephants have pushed through and just stood on it and, and then just walked through and just didn't care about the fences. Uh, we often saw elephants um, and it was just an amazing thing. I, I did notice because I was in high altitude. Uh, Sometimes my hands got a bit swollen with the uh, with all the walking, um, which I found very interesting. I did, wasn't quite sure what was going on, but I think I can link it to altitude uh, and circulation issues. Uh, you have to be very aware of us doing that uh, climbing mountains. Uh, and but it was it was a wonderful, absolutely wonderful opportunity. And one of my best memories of my 
journey through Africa was with the Samburu tribe. Another thing I really liked about them compared to the Maasai with the with the husband, I was um, going to see their family. Uh, one time, he never, oh, he never, no one asked me for money. Absolutely no one asked me for money. And there's only one time I remember um, the husband coming up to me and he was very embarrassed, I could see, but he actually asked me. He didn't for some money but it was, it was for uh, some of his goats were sick and he wanted to get the medicine, you know, the medication to fix his goats. And I was so willing to help. Um, every time I went out there, I always bought bananas and I bought other, other um, food to help them. But I, you know, the medication was something like, 20 US dollars, something you know, really hard for them because for them, 20 US dollars was a month's wage. So I was happy to help them and happy because they hadn't, that they're so much out of the way from the tourism that has destroyed the Maasai that they hadn't been spoiled as yet. In that, uh, this was back in the 90s, of course, I don't know what they're like now. So I believe it's something to think about with how we as Westerners affect different Indigenous customs by being there. And this is the this is what I'm going to talk about at the next episode about how our influence and our presence impacts on Indigenous tribes what we can do to reduce that impact and be aware of it uh, without trying to change their ways, uh, but also bring education. They may want the education, they, they may, but it should be a, a co-benefit, co-partnership. But I will talk about that in my next episode. Uh, I hope you'll join me then. Like always, I want to leave you with a thought to consider. What is your environmental and cultural footprint when you travel? How are you showing up to the country and the culture you are showing up with to make a better interaction for all concerned? Leaving the environment as you found it, reducing your impact on local resources and cultures to come out with such a positive outlook for both the local population and environment and yourself. Okay, please follow my podcast if you're enjoying what you are hearing and share it to others so they too may be inspired. I'll catch you next time.